0: Welcome to Civil Action. This is Brian Kabatak along with Sean Kornickian. And every now and then, usually about once a week, we try to put together a podcast, review new and recent cases that have come down affecting California plaintiff lawyers, primarily California plaintiff lawyers. If you're not a California plaintiff lawyer, you are certainly free to continue to listen to this podcast and we try to cover cases that have some impact on our practice from the California Court of Appeal, California Supreme Court, the Ninth Circuit, the United States Supreme Court, and other courts that may have an effect, as well as talk about important issues that face us on a day-to-day basis in our practices. We hope you find this useful,
1: and we'd love to hear your feedback. And uh, before we get started, we want to ask you to subscribe and uh, rate us and leave some feedback. Let us know. You can get in touch with us at kbklawyers.com and on all social media platforms at Kabatech LLP. So, So, Sean,
0: why don't you tell us about the cases we're going to try to cover today?
1: Yeah, we have five cases today, and if I don't screw it up, we're going to try to cover all of them. Uh, the first one is a United States Supreme Court case that has to do with the Class Action Fairness Act and the removal statute. Then the next case we're going to cover has to do with treble damages under the penal code, under a specific penal code
0: section. Do you know how to treble damages?
1: You multiply it by three. Very good. Wow. Wow, that's really... I was never good at math, but now, now I'm doing better. Next, we're going to cover uh, a failure to prosecute case, a case that has to do with the statute that requires a case to be brought to trial. Um, And then after that, we're going to cover picking off class representatives and a very good outcome from the first district court of appeal. Um, And lastly, we're going to talk about a one way the attorney fee statute under the
0: labor code. So should we get to it, Sean, or should we just talk about something else? What do you want to talk about, Brian. Oh, I want to talk about the United States Supreme Court and what a great job they do protecting consumers and the public and all the people, good people of the United States of America. They really do. And and speaking
1: about great things protecting the public, let's talk about the Class Action Fairness Act, which is very fair to consumers and everyday Americans. Right. It's actually a
0: misnomer. It's a misnomer. The Class Action Fairness Act went into effect in about 2005, and it was passed by a uh, Republican Congress Uh, Class Action Fairness Act is anything but fair to consumers but extraordinarily fair to the defendants and people who get sued in class actions because it allows people to remove cases to federal court even if it doesn't meet the basic standard under um, 1441 for removal meaning complete diversity in cases and uh, it was used to to, um, really force most of these cases into federal courts these days but The United States Supreme Court surprisingly came down with a case that has not a bad holding. It's not a, you know, not a barn burner, but it's not a bad holding, right? So the case is Home Depot
1: versus Jackson. It just came out um, from the Supreme Court. It involved Mr. Jackson, who got initially sued by Citibank in state court to collect a debt owed for the purchase of something from, I believe, from Home Depot. And Mr. Jackson turned around and filed a class counterclaim against Citibank, um,
0: as well as Home Depot and another company. So a good thing to remember, if your creditor comes after you, suing you for failing to pay, you can turn around and file a class action, because now they're using the courts, whether they have an arbitration agreement or not, they're using the courts to assert an affirmative claim against the debtor. And here the debtor turns around and files a class action against not only Citibank, but files it also against Home Depot.
1: Yeah, I think it was Home Depot and another company. All of them were together marketing and selling some system or whatever he bought, he had bought from Home Depot. Uh, so Citibank tries to remove the case to federal court under CAFA. Um, and they argued that... It, it, CAFA requirements are met. Yeah.
0: it wasn't just Citibank; it was Home Depot because Home right. Depot wasn't in the original case. Citibank never could remove this case
1: because un- they brought
0: it in state court. Correct. So, so Home Depot comes along, and now
1: now they try to remove it. And the question that went up to the Supreme Court was whether or not, based on um, a defendant that was a, a,
0: a, a cross defendant, a, c- a cross that's defendant the word that you're was brought in for yeah, a cross right, defendant. That's right.
1: I'm not very good with words, but Brian has the best words. Uh Um, based on what a cross-defendant being brought into the case, whether
0: or not that can remove the case under CAFA. Right, so this cross-defendant, meaning Home Depot, says, hey, we have a right to remove it. First, we have a right to remove it under the General Removal Statute, 1441, just purely on diversity grounds. There, the court looked at it, and surprisingly, Justice Thomas, who was in the majority in this case, actually said, no, that's not the plain language of the statute. The plain language of the statute only reserves the right for removal to a defendant. And you, Home Depot, are not a defendant. You're a cross-defendant. Right. They made a distinction there,
1: and we would say that they got it right, and this is good news. And then they also analyzed this under CAFA, and what did they find there, Brian?
0: Well, once they looked at CAFA, they looked at 1453, which is the CAFA statute, and they said that CAFA would allow removal because that was the spirit and intent was to allow these actions to be brought in a federal forum for large class actions. And there, Justice Thomas disagreed, and he says, nope, once again, it said any defendant. It doesn't say any cross-defendant. So uh, ultimately, he comes to the conclusion that if there needs to be an alteration to this, he suggests that Congress should do that. And since we know that Congress right now can't even vote um, on which way the sun rises in the morning, it's unlikely that they're going to change this. Now, is this something that's going to be widely used by plaintiffs in cases in removal? Probably not.
1: But the use I see in a case like this in this opinion is to clarify if some other issue comes up in a case you have and you're trying to move to remand back to state court, this case clarifies that any mention of defendant in 1441 and in the CAFA statute refers only to defendants. So if you get a defendant that cross-complains against someone and they try to play some kind of a game, you know, this is a good case to look at. So it's a good case to read to just and get a. And why do we land. not like federal court? Because um, – They have rocket dockets, usually, the JAM plaintiffs. Uh, MSJs can be brought on a regular briefing schedule. Um, There's also requirement, you know, you'll have a judge that says
0: that they want class cert filed within 90 days. Right, unanimous jury verdicts, smaller than 12 people, civil juries. Uh, erratic um, judges, some who uh, are very result-oriented to get your case out of there, huge dockets. I mean, a million problems with federal court. So I just sum it up this way. Federal court, bad for plaintiff. State court, good.
1: And, and CAFA, bad for plaintiffs. CAFA,
0: very bad for Yeah. Plaintiffs. All right, yep. what's our next case?
1: Next case is Switzer versus Wood. It comes out of the 5th District Court. Of the Sunnywood
0: Wood. Robert Clark, Sunnywood the second. Right.
1: Um this is a case about treble damages and it's very it's a good case because it kind of reminds us to think outside the box. Here uh you had someone suing another person for fraud, conversion of property and Seeking treble damages under a penal code section.
0: Now, penal code isn't that the criminal justice system, Brian? Correct, Sean. It's the criminal justice system. Ah, act like you haven't been part of the criminal justice system before.
1: <laughs> right. Right. What is the penal code? So I have, the, I have no familiarity with. Ah,
0: uh, yeah. Okay. Sure. So in this case, though, I thought this was I thought this was a worthwhile case to talk about because. It is important to look outside of our world when we're dealing with specific cases. You know, there are elder abuse statutes which allow for troubled damages. There's various statutes out there which allow for enhanced damages, attorney's fees that you might not find in your ordinary case. And in this case, they looked at Penal Code Section 496, which is effectively the, the, the receiving stolen property statute.
1: Right, and they relied on that, and in fact, it even made it onto the special verdict form. And the jury found that the defendants here violated four nine six by receiving stolen property. Um, and right. It was
0: a business. It started as a business dispute, but but um, I believe that the argument made by the plaintiff was that the defendant uh, wrongfully and deceitfully took possession of converted property, uh, and then withheld large amounts of money, so they were able to analogize the receiving stolen property, which I thought was incredibly clever. And this
1: uh, subsection A of 496 allows for um, treble damages, and that's, I believe, that takes your damages and it multiplies it by two. Is that right? No,
0: right? no shot, three. Three, three. three. Okay. Treble. treble, three, treble, treble. three. Okay. So in this
1: case, um, what happened? Uh, and in this case, the trial court declined to
0: award treble damages, and they said, nope, get out of here. The jury made the specific finding. yep. yep. The jury found that it applied, but then the trial court said that statute doesn't apply to civil cases, right? And the Court of Appeals said,
1: no, that's wrong. Um, 496 is clear, this penal code section is clear and unambiguous that you can recover— Treble damages if you if you prove that this has happened. Right. It doesn't require a criminal conviction. You it doesn't require
0: it doesn't require beyond a reasonable doubt. Which, in case you're wondering, Sean, that's the standard in criminal courts. Oh, I'm familiar. It doesn't require. I bet you are. It doesn't require. Clear and that's right. Just say not guilty. Not guilty. Don't say anything else. And it doesn't require clear and convincing. So it, preponderance of an evidence of the evidence, and the statute in its plain language says any person who's been injured by a violation of the statute. May bring an action for three times the amount of actual damages in civil court, plus fees, plus costs of suit. So it's an excellent statute. Uh, and the Court of Appeal here basically found what?
1: Uh, they reversed. And sent it back to the trial court and told the trial court to enter a modified judgment that includes treble damages on the cause of action for violation of the Penal Code section. There was also some issue of the attorney fees, as you mentioned. So they sent back for they remanded for that as well. And th- this is something to keep in mind because we come across cases where treble damages are an option, and you need to make sure that you you assert that you get these treble damages if the jury finds in favor on that specific cause of action.
0: Don't miss an opportunity to bring a claim like this. It's valuable to you. You can get attorney fees. It's valuable, obviously. And you'll client. have
1: defense counsel on the other end say, no, you you don't automatically get it. That's up to the jury. You have to ask them if you can get it. Well, look at cases like this. You, you do automatically get it. Court of Appeal says you automatically and get I it. And I
0: thought what was important about this case also is that the Court of Appeal makes a big deal about the plain language of the statute. So when you're doing statutory interpretation, you don't have to start looking at the legislative history. You don't have to start looking at um, how the statute was written or what what was intended. Or, or subsequent case law.
1: You can just look at the plain language.
0: Right. So good case, good opportunity for people to look beyond that. What's our next case?
1: Next case is Coronet versus Bardi out of the first district court of appeal, recent case that came down. So before we get started, let's talk about uh, uh, CCP section 583, which is the code section for uh, failure to prosecute, getting a case dismissed for failure to
0: prosecute. 583.410 to be specific. And uh, that's, that's not the five-year rule. So initially, what's the five-year rule?
1: Five-year rule is if you don't bring a case to trial within five years, it gets dismissed. It's mandatory, I believe.
0: Right. It's jurisdictional. and, yeah. and But as long as the jury's sworn and the trial starts, then your five-year's okay. But it is jurisdictional. If you don't do that by the, by the first day after five years, you're done. Your case right. is toast. It's jurisdictional. And, and that's
1: 583.310, and the one we're looking at here is 583.410. That's why Brian gets paid the big bucks for being specific about code sections And reading
0: the cases. Right. Well, good for you. And not screwing up because I failed to bring a case to trial within five years or having a motion for failure to prosecute brought, which is a discretionary standard. That's right. There's a number of factors that the court considers. Um, you know, yeah. What,
1: what those, are some of those factors? Yeah,
0: those factors are, are always important. So before I even get to those factors, let's just say this statute, in my opinion, is really intended for... The case, that court's dormant. There's no activity in a case. There's nothing done. There's nothing happening. It just sits there on the court's docket month after month after month. And finally, the court at some point can, even on its own, bring a motion for failure to prosecute. More often than not, you see it brought by a defendant. But what the factors that the court's supposed to look at are some of the following. The court's file, whether or not um, there's enough data and information in the court to show that there was diligence. The actual diligence itself in trying to get the case served, whether there were settlement negotiations, whether there was discovery or pretrial proceedings, the complexity of the case. A more complex case is going to take a lot longer to get to trial. What about other litigation that's related to this litigation? That's a factor to take into consideration. Whether there were extensions of time, uh, the condition of the court's calendar, and whether the interests of justice are best served by dismissal. So if you look at all those as a totality of the circumstance, I think you're really looking at, gee, was this case really being litigated by the parties. And in my opinion, the trial court's decision in this case is bizarre. Yeah, I do not understand. There must be a backstory here, because it just looked to me like this was an aggressively litigated case.
1: In this case, um, the plaintiff here was pro per, but an attorney. So it was an attorney acting pro per. It was a breach of fiduciary duty and conversion lawsuit that he brought. And he brought the case, he got sick at some point, that's documented in the file. I, I think had a stroke. Yeah, like serious illness, not like he had a cold, I can't come in on Monday, which is what I try to do most Monday mornings, and Brian goes, shut up, Sean. You, You've you, also tried not, to claim that you have a stroke,
0: and I just don't believe that. I don't think you have a stroke. Yeah, and, uh, well, I don't know. Okay, but also, there was a trial date in this case, the plaintiff had paid the jury fees, there had been... Extensive not just law and motion, but there were plenty of opportunities for mediation. The court referred it to mediation, referred it to like a voluntary settlement conference inside the court. And there was all this information about there the was case. even a
1: trial, I think you mentioned there was a trial date which got moved by stipulation of parties, meaning the other side who's seeking to have the case dismissed. Agreed to moving the trial date. So it's kind of wild. It's a wild decision from the trial court
0: here. Right. And and the Court of Appeal actually went on to say the trial court made material findings that are not supported by the evidence. How often do you see that in a published decision? And they looked at the factors here that the plaintiff's counsel become unexpectedly unavailable. And you know, that's one of the things I constantly say about the practice law it's tough. And 99% of the judges out there mostly get it and understand it. And I understand from a judge's standpoint, too. There are a lot of lawyers out there that are bad, that aren't prepared, and it's frustrating to them. But to me, this looked like a case where the trial court was bending over backwards to find a way to get rid of this case and and. And granted this motion, and it just was the wrong decision. Unfortunately, the court of appeals saw that. You
1: rarely even ever see these motions, and you know, you know. Well, Brian's, Brian's been practicing for for decades now, many many decades. And how, I mean, how often has someone ever even brought one of these motions? Yeah, we don't get them. Course? I
0: mean, one of the reasons we don't get them is we actively litigate our cases, and we make sure the cases are moving forward. And but this is aberrational, and you know, this could happen. The fact pattern in this case could certainly happen to anybody, and that's why I looked at this case and I felt for the practitioner. I felt for the person. I don't know what happened. Maybe there was a you know a personality um, conflict between the judge and the, the lawyer in the case, but it really looked like it was a result-oriented decision as opposed to one that followed the law. And like I said, the court of appeal um, found otherwise. But you know, a good lesson to take away from this is make sure your cases are moving along, or, or there is somebody out there who could bring this kind of emotion. The other the other lesson to be learned is watch that five year because. There's a case we're not talking about today, but there's a case about six months ago where it looked like the parties had had the case stayed, the court stayed the case, and um, ultimately the court found that the stay wasn't sufficient enough and uh, dismissed the case based on the five years.
1: Yeah, I think it might be on another one of the episodes we talk about that case. Next, we're going to talk about a case out of the First District Court of Appeal, Timlick versus National Enterprise, and it has to do with picking off class representatives. Um, so here, Mr. Timlick filed a class action complaint um, alleging that a debt collector, a third-party debt collector, was not complying with the consumer collection notice laws. And there's very, very strict requirements for what debt collectors have to do, so much so as to regulate the font size that's used on the letters that are sent to debtors that they're trying I think to collect.
0: people from. get really pissed off by debt collectors.
1: Yeah, and that's why we have very strict I think there must
0: be sharp practices. Do you know what that means, Sean? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. There must be sharp practices when it comes to debt collection. You know, ways that they trick people, ways that they say things to people about paying their debts. And as a result of that, there's a whole body of law that's evolved about consumer protection. But that's not really what this case is about. the, The reason I think this case is worth talking about is because of the... Underlying practice that happened here and how they were trying to pull the rug out from underneath the people who were probably pursuing a pretty um, Righteous class action case.
1: So the plaintiff brings this class action says that you're not complying with the requirements under the statute the statute or another code section has a uh, An ability to cure so the defendant here uh, purportedly cures their breach of this uh, Consumer collection notice law and sends out a letter to the plaintiff, to the plaintiff's lawyer, saying, uh, you know, correcting the correcting the issues, maybe enlarging the font size or whatever, and then brings an MSJ and argues, "Hey, judge, we corrected the notice. There's no longer a cause of action left here. This plaintiff is no longer harmed. They can't
0: maintain their claim against us." Yes. Yeah, so and then,
1: and then the judge throws it out, throws out the whole case.
0: Right. And so I think one of their first arguments, and really beyond the scope of what we want to talk about, is the court found that they did have the right to cure under this specific statute, which is fine. They have the right to cure. But then it came down to the following issue, which is because we effectively picked off your plaintiff by resolving what their complaints were, and your plaintiff doesn't have standing to act as class representative, the whole class um, should fail. And the Court of Appeal said
1: no that's not how it's going to work and they drew a line in the sand over here and this is why it's really a good outcome they they reversed and they said that uh, you can't go around and just pick off these class representatives because it's going to lead to needless litigation because what what would happen here there's clearly a class of people um who who have been you know who have a viable claim and the lawyer can just go and find somebody else or or these other people can right. find the lawyer and But that's what I, that's, the same what I
0: that's what I thought when I first read this case I thought that's where the court was going I thought they were going to say well we're not going to dismiss the whole class action but this class representative this person who had the cure no longer can be a class representative And you can go out and you can find another class representative. That's where I thought they were going with the case, but no. It went even further. It went went even further. It
1: said the case can proceed as is with this named plaintiff.
0: Right, because what they ultimately concluded, and I love this in the case, is they said uh, it would have required multiple individual lawsuits or individual claims with a revolving door litigation. Because what would happen in this case, and let's just focus on these facts for a second. What would happen in this case is each new class representative you brought who said, I had this problem, they would cure. Within 15 days under the statute, they would cure. And then they'd have to go out and get another one. And then they'd cure, and they'd get another one. And then they'd cure. And of course, that would lead to a ridiculous result because they'd only cure for people who were the class plaintiffs. Right,
1: curing one by one. It's not like they're doing a class-wide cure. I think there would totally be a different outcome if there was somehow a way to do a, a class-wide cure because then they can prove in, in, in a summary judgment motion that this whole thing has been cured as to the whole class. The, or then they might, even have the right,
0: they might even have the right to catalyst fees or something like that for bringing the class The plaintiffs action. would have the right to that, that's but right. There, but the practice was still going on. So what I thought was interesting about this case was not just what they were saying based upon this specific statute, but we get involved in class action cases particularly in the auto defect world where the the vehicle is defective and they'll come and they'll take that specific plaintiff and they'll say, we're going to give you a brand new car, just like being on a game show. You've got a brand new car. And then they pull the rug out from underneath that person in the class action. And it's possible with this decision that you could look at it and you could say, okay, well, based upon this – now we have the um, the ability to say, okay, thank you very much for curing with this person, but we're still going to go forward with the class action. Right. So long
1: as you can prove that it is a class wide problem. Yeah. In- interesting. It's a case. really good outcome. It's a really good outcome. It's it, Timlick versus National Enterprise. Anyone that works in that area or does class actions in general and is sick of having class reps picked off or wants to avoid that happening, you should check out this case.
0: We're going to finish today with an uh, employment case or related to employment. Dane Electric versus Bodaco. Bodaco, Did I pronounce is that it right? Bodok. 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 I don't know, uh,
1: but it comes out of it's the Fourth French. District, co- co- possibly. Well, no, because but the it, case it says
0: Bodok lived in France.
1: Oh, now we're covering French cases. Does this come from? No,
0: the- this is not a French case. This is from the thir- Fourth DCA.
1: Which is in California. It's not in the yes. Bordeaux region.
0: Orange County. Okay. Which is sometimes just like Bordeaux. Right, but not. Um,
1: okay, Fourth District Court of Appeal, uh, and this involved a claim brought under Section Labor Code Section 218.5.
0: Well, let's start by talking about the attorney fee provisions under the Labor Code.
1: Right. Under 218.5, there is a one-way attorney fee provision. Almost.
0: Almost a one-way attorney fee provision. It's a one-way attorney provision, meaning that if the employee prevails more often than not, he or she is entitled to his or her attorney fees, right? Right. But there is an exception to that because um, if if the case is brought in good faith and the employee fails, loses, employer comes second, wins the Employer wins and it was brought in bad faith. No, if it's brought in good, good faith, faith. If it's brought in good faith, the employee employer doesn't get his or her or its attorney's fees. Right. But if the case was only way that they can get paid attorney fees is if the case was brought in bad faith.
1: An employer can get it there. If they win if and it's they show in that it was faith. brought in bad okay.
0: faith. Okay. That's settled law. That isn't a a there has to be a judicial finding of it being brought in bad faith in whole or in part and then the attorney fees would switch otherwise if the employee loses the employer doesn't it just It's just so one way. So one
1: way unless bad employee brought it in bad faith. Right. And then in this case, there was a uh, breach of contract uh, claim. And over there, there was
0: a fee provision in the contract. There were two separate case claims. Right. There was there was a, a, a wrongful term kind of claim, but then there was also a promissory note that was being pursued. And the this case started out with the employer suing the employee uh,
1: over that promissory note. And in response, the employer cross-complained to recover
0: unpaid wages. Right. and the But what ultimately happened in this case is that the employee lost on both counts. In other words, they were obligated to— Lost on to re- a promissory
1: note, lost on the wage claim. Right. But the court found that the case was not brought in bad faith. Right. So—, so- they so to un- if award it were attorney just
0: fees. if it were just a employee lawsuit the the um there would be no attorney fees
1: right because it's not in bad faith, like we said, the rule is one way unless bad faith here he lost, so he doesn't get it. employer doesn't get it either because it wasn't brought in bad faith, but the employer won on the contract claim, so they get awarded fees there on the contract claim, maybe maybe
0: maybe, and that's where the case got murky yeah. And the argument was, what, if anything, could they recover?
1: Trial court allowed them to recover uh, fees
0: based on
1: uh, defending the wage claim that were intertwined with the contract claim. So, you know, they were working on some issue that has to do with the contract claim, they're entitled to that. And if it overlaps with the wage claim, Trial court said, "Yeah, you could still do that because it's intertwined with the contract claim under which they can get fees." Inextricably intertwined. Inter- Inextricably intertwined. Inextricably. How, how do you how do you Inextricably. define Inextricably? How do you well, I mean Ron's you can't having separate having too them. much fun or he's losing it. Um and how do you define that standard? You can't separate it. Okay. And there's there You're there defining be, the word, there's no
0: way that you could possibly separate the effort or work that went into to the one action versus the other. So, as a result of that, what the court held here was um, we're not going to disturb this rule about the bad faith, the action has to be brought in bad faith, but we're not going to allow you to color attorney fees that were more likely than not part of the employment case into the collection of the, of the promissory note case. So they sent it back and um, they said, no, the court has to do a better job of being able to separate it out only the effort that went into collecting the promissory note in this case. And so, no overlap. Then, no overlap at all. And then, but I, what I found interesting in this case was at the very end of the opinion, the court said, but of course the employer is entitled to recover its attorney fees on appeal and costs on appeal, but only with respect to that portion of it that relates to the promissory note, right? So, if this got taken up on appeal and the employer prevailed, they'd be able to recover. Well, they'd be only On, the, on be, that question. On the promissory note. That's the right. interesting part about it. But then what the court of appeal at that point did said was, we're not going to entertain a motion for fees here. You can go back to the trial court and deal with it all there for the appeal, for the underlying case, and for anything else. And they sent it back to the trial court. So usually that means it'll be back. Yeah.
1: They didn't want to do it, so they sent
0: it back. So they interesting back issues to today. I thought we covered um, a wide variety of things Uh, and uh, I hope that this was useful. It certainly is always interesting to us when we read these different cases and see where the law is going in California. Um, I think you continue to see, particularly in the employment area, a a pro-employee bent of the courts, Um, but when you drift into other areas, we see different areas, and, of course, when you go up to the United States Supreme Court, it's the rare day that a consumer or plaintiff wins. Anyway, that's all we got today. Yeah, good cases.
1: Uh, We kind of didn't disagree with any opinions in particular. Um, if you have some feedback, if you have questions, if you want to tell us about other cases, or if you want to tell us to shut up, you can find us online. You can find us at Facebook. Don't KBK. encourage that. Uh, I don't know. I want to, it's a democracy. People, we want to give people their own voice. We want them to chime in. We want them to give us feedback. Uh, you can subscribe to us on whatever platform you're listening to us. You can leave feedback. You can reach us at KBKLawyers.com or on all social media at Kabatek L We'd love to hear from you. Until next time.